Welcome to School of Movies. <laughs> Guardians of the Galaxy Volume 2. The fate of the universe lies on your shoulders. Now, whatever you do, don't push this button. Because that will set off the bomb immediately and we'll all be dead. Now, repeat back what I just said. I agree. No! No, that's the button that will kill everyone. Try again. I am Groot. Mm-hmm. I am Groot. Uh-huh. I am Groot. No! Showtime, a-holes. Ah! Yeah, I feel a general unselfish love for just about everybody. No, sexual love. No, no, I don't. For her. No. <laughs> she just told everyone your deepest, darkest secret. Dude, <laughs> come on. I think you're overreacting a little bit. You must be so embarrassed. <laughs> do me, do me, do me. We are back with Marvel and a ship full of disreputable pirates. Mr. Joshua Garrity of Kane and Rince, hello. Hello there. Mr. Jerome McIntosh of Gameburst, hello. Good day, sir. And Mr. Brendan Agnew of Synapse.co. Call me Zardu Hasselfro. I shall. And hello to my co-pilot, Sharon Shaw. Hello. What struck me this time around, uh, although I was always aware of it on some level, was the undercurrent of play threaded through both Guardians films. Fighting an army of video game spacecraft controlled by petulant teenagers so there's no needless bloodshed is just one brilliant little touch that exemplifies this. But now I'm thinking that if at the end of Guardians 3 we cut away to a bunch of kids playing in the woods on Earth, then everything will still make perfect sense. <clears throat> See, there's this one kid, Peter, who's working through a lot of issues of paternal loss this time around, and that's kind of dominated their games to the point where the group had to split up and do separate roleplay sessions in different areas. 
Peter has been upsetting Gloria, who is having difficulty understanding her burgeoning feelings because of her strict upbringing. She's also been forced to play with her sister Nicola, causing them to end up fighting, first verbally and then physically. This time around, Jack, who doesn't understand most of their jokes, has made an awkward friend of the shy new girl at school, Mian, who has never played like this before. Rocky, who pushes everyone else away and keeps being rude, has been spending time with Peter's gruff stepfather. They even let Bobby Greg play with them, even though he's way too little, mainly to preserve the memory of his big brother, Grant, who died last year, and had the kindest heart of all of them, bravely and selflessly defending them from a humorless bully named Rowan, whom they all ended up having to take down together. That's what Guardians feels like to me. Kids playing. But what hit me right in the soul, something that I wasn't expecting this time, was the impact of one major side of Peter's story. Looking for something all of his life and finding out that he had had it all along. That's the core of the movie. We've seen this concept play out many times in the past. In fact, I was going to make a sarcastic tweet drawing parallels with Kung Fu Panda 3, in which the cuddly, enthusiastic, funny guy has to choose between two father figures warring for his affections. The one played by a man who became widely known because of violent adult television, and the other played by the one who was in Big Trouble in Little China. But but that was a joke made by someone who hadn't seen what a monster ego turned out to be or how redemptive Yondu's journey's end would be. This slayed me. I was fairly certain I was going to love this film. The original is one of my all-time favourites. It was the same production team being allowed to work their magic again and the early buzz was wildly positive. But I loved this story so much, had such a deep connection with the characters that when I emerged into the sunshine to discover that people had problems... It was baffling and saddening, because the bittersweet weight of this is impossible not to feel for me. From Mr. Blue Sky onwards, I was just incredibly happy to be back with these guys. And as the credits rolled, I was already thinking about how long it was going to be until we get to hang out together, outside of a support appearance in the already stuffed to the gills Avengers Infinity duology. Guardians 3 hasn't even been announced yet, although its uh, existence is assured. The strengths of this film lie with the amount of time that Gunn and company allow you to just kick back and spend with the Guardians in compromising situations that bring their weaknesses and misgivings to the surface. I deeply appreciated the more leisurely pace, the lack of prerogative to prevent a universe-ending cataclysm, something economically afforded to just one section to explain and then deal with. They have to be the Guardians of the Galaxy, after all. But here's the big one. Looking for something and finding that you've had it all along isn't new. As I said, the fact that he's looking for his father is a nice way of exemplifying multiple generations who have not had that sense of stability of a man that they can depend on. I myself have historically had trouble there. But I haven't been looking for a father so much as I've been looking for a teacher. When I was in my teens, I was looking for a Morpheus. Soon after that, a Gandalf, also a Dumbledore, a Sage. I want someone who believes in me to take me under their wing, change my perspective, smack me up sharply, shake out my bad habits, send me out into the world again, having learned a valuable lesson. That's what I'm searching for. An older authority figure who recognizes what I can do is potentially valuable to the world and wants to help me to do what I do, only better. I've waited and I've searched. And I've adopted a few who might fit this bill and I've always found myself disappointed as they lost interest and faded away. <clears throat> Until the point where I reached the conclusion that this Gandalf is not going to ha 
this Gandalf is not going to appear, that he was inside me all the time, that I've had to teach myself so much over the years in absence of a teacher, that it's my prerogative to help others, to believe in them, to take them under my wing, to change their perspective, to smack them up sharply, to shake out their bad habits, to send them out into the world having learned a valuable lesson. At least that's how I felt going into Guardians 2. But the reason this rocketed to the top of my Marvel movies favourites, and thus my favourite films of all time list, was the realisation that I did, in fact, meet my Gandalf many years ago, and he stayed with me. Or rather, she did. Because you see, Sharon was the one who came along when I was 19, having had just seen The Matrix. My mind was wide open, and she believed in me then. And she altered my perspectives, she broadened my vision, she made me sharpen up my skills and compelled me to work harder than I ever thought I could at what I'm good at. She's been my sage all along, my teacher, and it's so bloody obvious that even my subconscious brain knows it. Last year, when I was writing The Princess Thieves, I deliberately gender-flipped the Merlin character, modelling her partly on Granny Weatherwax, who was, in effect, Sharon's Gandalf growing up and giving her affectations of Sharon. Before I met her, I was rude, obnoxious, bright, lazy, and a teenager through and through, all... The best of me today is the direct result of Sharon's guidance, insight, teachings, and faith in my ability. So, as Peter, <clears throat> excuse me, guys, as Peter Quill realized, God, just get through this last paragraph, dude. <sighs> so, as Peter Quill realized that the father he had always yearned to spend time with was someone he had placed in the wrong box his whole life. I realized that Sharon had been occupying the apparently empty sage box for me all of these years, as well as the one marked wife and the one marked best friend. So thank you, Sharon. I've been waiting for weeks to say that. Like, that was my thought coming out of Guardians, and I was like, right, now when can we podcast on it? Because I've really got to be able to get this into words. And thank you to James Gunn and company for smacking me up sharply with this profound realization. All the times that I've cried, keeping all the things I knew inside. It's hard, but it's harder to ignore it. If they were right, I'd agree, but it's them they know, not me. Now there's a way, and I know. Ay, ay, ay. That's it. That's all. That's my stuff. That's my bit. Okay. <clears throat> okay. <laughs> you guys still there? Yeah. <laughs> okay. Thanks for yeah. making sure we have to follow that. I'm sorry. Um, <laughs> Thank you for making sure I'm not going to be able to say anything for the rest of the show. You're welcome. Thank you. Okay, um, so the look of the films. Uh, Josh, uh, you and I talked about this with Neil uh, when we were discussing how um, the... Uh, it's actually not really the cameras, although... Uh, um, from the sounds of it, they, they had serviceable enough cameras, but the fact that they just gave the, it the generic color, what's the word? I want to say color processing. It's color grading. 
Yeah, I, I mean, it's uh, color coding, isn't it, or something like that? But now that the like the the, the previous films have uh, been rendered in a fairly drab palette, which uh, eliminates true black, Guardians being you know pretty dazzling to look at. Now with the red camera. And uh, from the looks of it, a, a completely different color processing. Guardians Two looks goddamn phenomenal. Oh yeah, like it's 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 definitely just purely on a, a visual um, perspective. It's it's probably the most beautiful movie that Marvel Studios has created. Mm. There's just there there was that shot where um, Gamora is just in the middle of like a deserted area and she's in the left corner and you get to see the horizon uh, in front of her. And just the use of colour there was just really jaw dropping. It's really fantastic. And but even just like like we said in the previous podcast, it's even the incidental scenes that look better. Just the conversation between two characters looks colourful and bright and beautiful in a way that puts Doctor Strange to shame. Yep. It very much feels like they've um, like taken the progress they made with Doctor Strange, just expanded on it, and because they're dealing with the galaxy, like the universe, they get to add in far more out there, outrageous colours and use them in better combination because it's a far more interesting landscape to work with and there was still even even in the first film there was still like a lot of color contrast and combinations that gun had a very keen eye with like, mm. even if you just look at morag you know it's got the really drab planet with a very colorful sky the nowhere has this really interesting green and yellow tinge to everything and but but you're right there's there's just so much more depth to the color and and you know it's so like there was there was a moment where they're talking to the sovereign and the set dressing looks like something that they would have turned away from Flash Gordon for being too <laughs> ridiculous. And, yeah. Oh, it's not Gordy, not for a good fella. <laughs> it's like, hey, guess what? These guys like gold a bit. It's color grading is the term. Ah. Yeah. So actually, let's talk about the soundtrack first, because that's one of the first things that hits you. You start off with Brandy, you're a fine girl um, in the um, cut. It's, by the way, this is a totally different film when you watch it the second time. Mm, like um, yeah. uh, like the, the first time mm. you're like, oh, Kurt Russell and Laura Haddock love each other so, so much. It's such a shame they can't be together. And the, like from like second time, you're like, you motherfucker. <laughs> <laughs> Um, but yeah, uh, so Wicked, uh, <laughs> Wicked Jack Burton will be gone in the morning, just like old Jack. Uh, and uh, they're, they're driving around listening to Brandy, you're a fine girl. Um, again, um, got the original Guardians of the Galaxy, and I, I've heard some people say this soundtrack isn't as good. I think it's just as good. I think it's, it's equal, uh, principally because uh, all of these songs still have major resonance with Meredith. Uh, Meredith Quill, uh, the girl who knew all the words to every song on the radio. Volume 1, also makes Volume 1, is about how she met um, Ego. Volume 2 is effectively how they parted. We're gonna, I'm going to have to assume that the third time was actually before Peter was born. Uh, 
So she's using the music to describe it. The, um, the chain by uh, Fleetwood Mac is a, a really excellent example of, of how she was feeling uh, around about the time he was going. Um, the one song that's excluded from this mix, I am again going to assume, is um, Father and Son by uh, uh, Yusuf Islam, um, principally because we can only assume that that wasn't on the Awesome Mix Volume 2 and was actually part of a new mix uh, given to him by Yondu. Wham Bang Shangalang. It's a guy leaving and going, oh, we had a great time. Um, come a little bit closer is, again, it's her, you know, going towards him and him moving away. Bring it on home, it's her, again, imploring him to, this, I'm moving backwards here. Uh, in fact, yeah, all of these songs, you know, My Sweet Lord by George Harrison, Mr. Blue Sky trying to work out what it is that he won't tell her. It's, it's about her trying to get closer to him and him pulling away. Yeah. And her... I trying to put that into that those emotions of feeling loss and rejection into song without it just being angry yeah i i think if if you were to say that um guardians of the galaxy 2 soundtrack was less joyous i would agree with that because it's more about this kind of breaking down of a relationship and the sadness of that and and also kind of giving you a hint at the toxicity of ego as a person through the lyrics in, the, in those chosen songs. Whereas with Guardians of the Galaxy 1, it very much feels like a ce- the celebration of a life of this woman that was really important to Peter mm-hmm. and his development. Um, so yeah, it, it, Guardians, Guardians 1 has a much more joyous soundtrack, but I think, I think the soundtrack in this has equal significance in this film. Bingo. Yeah. I think you could describe the movies as a whole using basically, you know, that that same uh, analogy or, or that same sort of because the first one is a is a more joyous. It's a celebration. It's almost a, you know, hey, look what we can do sort of coming out party. And the second one is a lot more bittersweet. Um, and I, I would definitely agree. The soundtrack for the second one is is just as good. If nothing else, the the way it uses the chain Mm. And the way it first introduces it and then it comes back for that really heavy hit there in the finale yeah. uh, is, is I think, it may, it may be a, a bigger hit in terms of how a musical choice accompanies an emotional beat than anything in the first Guardians. And I think the first Guardians yeah. has a fairly significant emotional punch in some places. Yeah. But that might not even be the biggest emotional beat of Volume 2. Like... You know, Volume Two has some really big emotional beats, it's and, and the music plays such a part of that. It's significant that it's called Volume Two. I hadn't thought about this until I was walking home today. This feels like the first and second ones put together feel like Kill Bill and Kill Bill Volume Two for me. Um, I have like extreme difficulty working out which is my favorite, but I think of both of them, Volume Two has mo- uh, more of an emotional stabbing. It's richer. It's richer, and uh, it's more measured, it's slower, and uh, more mature, and uh, it's consequences. Whereas the first one is this this fun celebration, this roaring rampage, um, and, and both go together brilliantly and also it's uh it's set up and payoff it's two halves of the same joke it's two parts you know two sides of the same coin it yeah. is incredibly difficult to take one without the other um and you're absolutely right i think they, these two movies managed to pull off a, a similar thing the first is about the mother the second about the father yeah mm. 
Oh, so good. I the don't one wanna... thing I appreciate... Oh, go ahead, I'm sorry. I, okay, I will say, I don't want to talk about or dwell on what problems other people might have, because I don't want to speculate about them. Um, I'm not all that interested, and I also don't want to sound judgmental of people who do have issues with this film. If you have issues, don't tell me them. I don't actually want to know. Um, but it's... I think I mentioned this when I got back after Beauty and the Beast. I'm just like, I'm reeling from how wonderful and beautiful it is. And the f I mentioned that I've just gone to see it because people are asking, have you seen this film yet? And I say, yes, I have finally now seen the film. And then they immediately say, what do you think about all the problems? And I'm like, I, I don't, don't, I don't <laughs> care. I don't care about the perceived problems. This is wonderful. Just, I'm going to have to step away from Twitter at this point. Um... And that doesn't mean, like, you know, never to come and tell me problems about a film. And, you know, uh, however, if someone, if I spot someone saying, I just saw Alien Covenant, I really liked it, I will stay the fuck away from that person and not jump on their ass and go, well, I really hated it, and here's why, in ten reasons. <laughs> Let them like it. That's fine. However, I will spout my ten reasons to the world, just not to them individually. <laughs> Anyway, a ten reasons why the Alien Covenant film ruins the Alien franchise. <clears throat> sorry, okay, so continue, guys. Sorry. Uh, well, to to talk about what you were making, the point you made with uh, you know whether the first movie is about the mother and the second is about the father, it's it's very, I mean, it's a very obvious sort of beat that they both hammer home. One of the things I liked is that Volume Two, it is it is about his father and and his surrogate father. But it's also, there's such a huge moment in there that's about him reaffirming the relationship with his mother and how that's yeah. always been one of the most important things. Like, he spends this whole movie, you know, looking for his dad and trying to figure out if, you know, was was my dad David Hasselhoff the whole time? And hmm. But but there's such, there's that big moment where everything turns on the reveal about his mother and why his mother died. Yeah. Significantly, that moment, the entire audience, well, not the entire audience, but there was an audible, oh, in the cinema when that, when we saw it for the first screen. That may just have been me. <laughs> <laughs> then you said it pretty loud because it did. sounded like several people. Mm. Some guy just, just started out, motherfucker. <laughs> real fucking indignant. <laughs> like, yeah. <laughs> yeah, no, that, that beat plays. Yeah, because yeah. people love Meredith, and and it's really easy to like Kurt Russell because he's got just charisma coming out of just all of his facial hair. But I but, expected oh, you man. to go say it ain't so, Kurt. <laughs> <laughs> well, I had, I mean, I kind of had a feeling they they dropped the hints about whether ego's really on the level kind of early on, and so you're just kind of waiting. But his then they're like, name oh, okay, he's is ego. That kind yeah. of gives you a bit of a hint that he's not going to be entirely. You what know, is your fas reliable. endless fascination with my forbidden closet of bones? <laughs> <laughs> but once it's like, oh yeah, and I gave your mom cancer. It's like, oh hell, no. okay. <laughs> but the way That's he a says Smith that, level reaction. that just the way he says that like proves how far he is from humanity mm -hmm. because no sane person would say that yeah like yeah. that they would like you would have to beat that out of them uh, for for them to like for them to actually 
like register as a person. Yeah. No one just says it in a kind of oh Peter. I was going to say it's way. not even so much the fact that there's the expectation that Peter will instantly understand that he had his reasons and forgive him. It's that he honestly doesn't see that it's that big a deal. Mm. Yeah. It, it's just such a casual thing to him that he can drop it into the conversation without it really meaning anything. That's the gut punch, yeah. that it is meaningless to him. And that this relationship was something that clearly, absolutely, for want of a better term, consumed Meredith. Yeah. Um, but um, but it's it's classic uh, hero's journey as well. The, the defeat of the father yeah. is a, a significant stage that Peter never got in part one. Yeah. Although, actually, he does manage to hoodwink his own father figure with the uh, switcheroo, with the mm. troll doll. Yes. So, it's, there's kind of a repeat of that. Yeah. In, in but then you're the nesting point. stories in stories, aren't yeah. you? Yeah. Side note, while Guardians 2 is definitely different the second time around, now that you've seen it, go back to Guardians 1. You will notice layer upon layer of detail that you hadn't spotted before, simply because it gives you new perspective on the characters. I do like the fact that they weren't mugs going into this. They were just like, this sounds a bit too good to be true. And they, they had serious misgivings, like, you know, canny people do. Um, they weren't just blundering into this too good to be true, clearly haunted house like a people in a horror movie. Um, and Gamora's, you know, just flat. Um, if he's lying and, and he, if he's evil, well, kill him. It's just really reassuring. <laughs> How good is that in terms of calling your shot? Because there's so many times where the story tells you what it's going to do. Yeah. It's kind of like an Edgar Wright bit where, I mean, even if you go back and look at Volume 1, Gunn knew a lot of what he was doing in Volume 2. They straight up tell you in Volume 1, boy, it's that a guy good was thing a jackass. we didn't drop him off. Yeah, that guy was a jackass. Yeah. It was right there the whole time. Yeah. And even when you look at the way that it plays certain moments, the, the moment of Peter and Ego playing catch you want to laugh at it mm. the first time you see it because it's just a bit too much and then you realize oh wait that's because it is utterly false it is hollow this isn't real it's mm. it is just for show and peter feels something and maybe ego does feel but he's not feeling what you're supposed to feel for those reasons you're supposed mm. to feel it and he's it, it's it's monstrous just hiding under that surface so you're supposed to feel that there's a sense of that's not right yeah, can can we can we officially add uh, ego to the good Marvel villains list yes. that we've got on yeah. the side here? Yes. Um, yes. So, in oh, okay, okay. one little thing about that ball game. Sorry, I, I I want you to continue, Josh, but I had to just slip this one in. A little thing I noticed: um, ego walks down the steps to allow Peter to throw the ball to him, effectively making his son the bigger man, which is such a touching, sweet, simple little action that you, makes you like him a little bit more, so it hurts more when he betrays everyone. Mm. Okay, continue, Josh, sorry. So, in Guardians of the Galaxy 1, we had uh, a pretty simple villain. Uh, I, pretty much the standard kind of... Um, we've got the an Infinity Stone. We've got to introduce it. So let's just have some random bad guy villain that you know the Red Skull represents um, mm. the leader of the the Dark Elves, who I've forgotten the name of because he's that Malekith. Malekith, the Ninth uh, Doctor. Yeah, um, he's really memorable. Um, yeah, he yeah he's just a standard bad guy. Whereas with Ego, we've got. 
a character that i mean ultimately it does come down to kind of a destroy the universe plotline but it's the reasons behind it are so much more compelling like he is an all-consuming narcissist to the point where not not only it's not enough to be, c- consider himself to be the best possible person in the whole universe like he's so good he's so awesome that everyone should be a part of him like everyone should be him and it's just it's just a fascinating um, position to have your villain in and to have that be the father figure of the protagonist have this like um what what on its surface appears really attractive and charming and and um some something that you think you'd want be this manipulative abusive toxic influence and that beat like this this character be kind of like a metaphor for all toxic relationships that um, sharon you you retweeted an article that talked about um uh, Guardians of the Galaxy 2 being um, about toxic fatherhood and I think it, it's more than that I think it's about toxic relationships and toxic upbringing and and all of that stuff in a in a larger sense like ego is could easily be the toxic boyfriend the the toxic uncle what have you like he represents all of that mm-hmm. and well, having oh sorry Alex well I didn't say Alex me oh sorry sorry well if you think about it, he has been all those things because he hasn't just done this to Peter. He's lured and uh, deceived a whole, like, probably hundreds of thousands of other beings, like, either as uh, just the, the woman he stays with and all of his children. He comes in as if he's... He tries to present himself as the ideal that they've always been searching for. And he just uses that to feed upon their vulnerabilities. Mm. Yeah. yeah, I'd like to think he didn't kill every single mother because he didn't have that much trouble leaving them behind. Mm. But uh, I'd only like to think that. Uh, that's that's a terrible thought to have. He, yeah. Either way, he killed hundreds of babies. Yeah. I genuinely think I genuinely think he loved Meredith, which maybe makes it even yeah. worse because I think he yeah. would have stayed. I think he's telling the truth, and I think he's always telling the truth. He's just not always telling you everything. But I think he would have stayed, and I do think that's why he killed her, and I think that's even worse. I don't think love really comes into it, by the way. I think that's obsession. I think uh, um, Ego did not feel love, because love is unselfish. The, um, the In, in uh, the new King Arthur movie, Jude Law stabs somebody he loves and goes, I love you, and it's like, you keep using that word. I don't think it means what you think it means. Well, I love you. I think it's just better if we're both dead. That's love knife territory. Um, <laughs> yeah. No, I think the the what you've got to bear in mind though is that he's he is the epitome of um, the the perception of the narcissist. And yeah. again, you know, it's it, it's there in the name. It's it's kind of a giveaway. But the the idea that um, uh, a, a narcissistic personality um, and and the birth of uh, the the ego, not in the Freudian sense, but the um, the the self and the the way a, a baby first sees the world. It is the center of the universe, as far as ego is concerned. He is the center of the universe. Yeah. He is everything. Meredith is the first being that appears to have made him 
for even a fraction of a moment comprehend that something exists outside himself. Now, to somebody who's never had that experience before and has more comprehension than the average few-week-old baby, Mm. that's a terrifying revelation that everything you ever perceived previously was part of you, you extended to everything. If something affected you, it affected the rest of the universe. Anything that touched on the rest of the universe affected you. For her to be a separate being, I think a a big part of why he pulled back and effectively rejected her and and pushed her away quite so hard was fear. You you never get a hint of that in the way his character is explored. And in a way, that's as it should be, because the whole perception of this is how it impacts on Peter. This is Peter's story, ultimately. But I think if you went into um, Ego as a being a little bit more rather than him as this massive multi-planetary entity um, then there would be some elements of that in there I do wonder how they're going to do Galactus now because we've already had a massive purple face with a giant voice in Doctor Strange and we've already had him embodied as a human uh, and very witty as a in uh, Guardians 2 so what are they going to make Galactus when they finally get to do him? Fog Fog, big old fog monster. <laughs> I think that's what it's going to have to be. A, a good fogging's in order. It's so just going to be a dude in a giant chair. Yep. Headdressing all. Concordantly. <laughs> it's the tits. Oh, oh speaking of which, um, the. Oh, I got a little bit of a tip off uh, that uh, Ego. I mean, I think I probably suspected it after you did, Josh, but I, I, I began to wonder about Ego's ego. Uh, and passed it off as, as him merely being an egomaniac um, when he had a little museum devoted to his own endeavours with uh, waxworks in there mm. on himself uh. and his exploits. It reminded me of Bioshock 2 and Andrew Ryan's museum to himself. Yeah. yeah. You know? That he had to build because nobody else wanted to. Yeah, yeah. Mm. Welcome yeah, to Ryan think about World. It. Is he just constantly reminding himself of what he's done. Mm. That's the visitor mm. centre. Every day, a rousing course, chorus of I'm awesome. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. But at the same time, would... he could still have been a good guy mm. with yeah. that mentality. Yeah. That's what made it such a like a bitter but believable turnabout. Mm. Yeah. I would and... agree. He's, he's definitely top maybe top three but i think he's the only kind of like he's a he's a great mcu villain but i think he's the kind that you could only have in a second movie because he he has to play all of off of all of these established things Mm. that took basically a first film to do and and ronin is is very much a one-note character Mm. although i will say i think ronin's existence might be worth it just for the moment when he walks off the ship and realizes he's in the wrong movie when Peter starts dancing. Yeah. Because, <laughs> because up until then, Ronan and the Guardians are basically in two different movies, and Ronan doesn't even realize that until he's like, what are you doing? Yeah. Where am I? I think Guardians of the Galaxy does a good job of justifying its uh, one-dimensional villain just because thematically the film just isn't about that conflict. It's about uh, outsiders finding purpose. So Mm. the villain being a bit flat 
it doesn't hugely impact my enjoyment in the same way that Malekith being very flat absolutely affects my enjoyment of uh, of 4-2. And also, I think there's just... I'm less willing to forgive it in a sequel. Like, you've had the first film, you've introduced us to all the key players, now flesh out a proper antagonist. I think... There, there is a bit of a pattern of uh, high-quality villains in Marvel having a significant patriarchal facet to them. Um, I would say my other favourite is Pierce in Winter Soldier, and there's definitely an element of the abusive father about the way he behaves towards Bucky. Um, and I suppose in, in the first Guardians, you... Again, there are hints of the true villain being Thanos, and he is a very obviously abusive uh, father. And uh, Nebula. Exactly, and although uh, the other best villain in the Marvel universe is Loki, who is a a brother rather than father, he is the way he is because because of of how Odin behaved and and um, the decisions that he made. So I I think that thread is running through the uh, through the wall. For that reason, I am absolutely on the edge of my seat to see how Kate Blanchett pulls off um, her role Hella. in Thor Ragnarok. Because mm. mm-hmm. that really diverges from that pattern. Yeah, because it's a mother. Or, or, or just a, 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 a woman who That's is... A, she's, a, she's looking Carly-like. Yeah, she's the dark, chaotic <laughs> queen. Yeah. Um, That's actually oh. one thing I was worried about with Guardians Volume 2. is like, oh good, daddy issues, because we didn't just go through that with <laughs> every other superhero movie every made, ever made. But mm. it's... It's not just a cheap bit. It's it, they actually use it dramatically. It's not just these guys have daddy issues and that's why they're angry. Yeah, well, that's no, the I... start of the conversation. That that mustn't be the end of the conversation. Otherwise, exactly. it's pointless bringing it up. Yeah, I mean, yes, I agree with you. It, it is kind of used as a lazy bit of characterization in a lot of a lot of these movies. But this this was the thesis statement of this movie. Like it, you've got Peter Quill and and Ego as the central point, but this is kind of. Uh, mirrored in the other um, you know character arcs that we see in this story so you've got Gamora and Nebula kind of coming to terms with the fact that they've both escaped from an abusive father and realizing whatever hatred they had towards each other within that prison doesn't exist outside of it because they realize they were both just trying to survive the monster that was you know raising them and so you have Rocky and Yondu um, coming together and realizing they have the shared experience of abandonment and rejection from their parents and being uh, having to bring themselves up in a horrible um, existence of either slavery or working as a soldier and getting to the point where they aren't getting to the point they are at now where they can find common ground with another share that experience and move past it like the whole film is about either parental abuse parental uh, parental toxicity and manipulation or parental abandonment it's also i think there's there are a lot of hints at redeeming those 
pasts and those relationships that have caused you difficulties by reenacting a better version. Um, yeah. So in uh, in Gamora's case, when she becomes protective of Nebula and tries to reconcile that relationship, it helps her to deal with how she felt about Thanos. In Rocket's case, he's having to be a father now to Groot, to somebody who for a large part of the first film was fatherly to him. Mm. And that helps him to overcome that feeling of, of being abandoned and being, you know, made a thing. Um, you've got Drax, who works through a lot of his... Um, uh, his difficulties with being a father and what he lost by losing his family but what he seems to, the conclusion he seems to come to in this on some level is that doesn't stop him being a father just because the family is not there anymore he does not then become not a father anymore um, and his relationship with Mantis although you know the, there are kind of hints of the, the possible development of something romantic it is mostly paternal he is mostly protective of her yeah, th throughout most of this movie, you see Drax, like, it sounds humorous when it comes out of his mouth, but in his mind, he's giving legitimate advice to, like, these are legitimate life lessons. Like, when he talks to Peter about what sort of person Gamora is, that that's, that's like your old, that's like a father figure saying, maybe this isn't the right girl for you, hmm. in his own weird way. And he's constantly, tr see, like, he's trying to give uh, that, what would be considered to him wise advice but obviously because of his um his his worldview it just comes out wrong i couldn't be pete quill's father i'm more of a fun uncle <laughs> <laughs> well, that is that is the the way that gun uses it. it's very much a, an actual developed theme through all the characters it's not just like a cheap springboard to teen wanks it's it's an act like you like you said it's an actual thesis statement I only had one, had one little issue with the original Guardians of the Galaxy, which niggled me, and they've somehow fixed it. I don't know if you remember, because most of you were on that Guardians show. Um, it's when Peter grabs the Infinity Stone and survives, and then oh, the, yeah. uh, the other Guardians grab him, uh, and they all survive and blow Ronan to Kingdom Come. And I was like, that's fantastic. It's like they, they grabbed it as a team, and that's why they survived. And then we're told afterwards by the Nova Corps, nah, it's because he's got celestial blood in him. It's like, oh, great. He's got special blood. That's brilliant. And they yeah, fixed it. Yeah, I remember that was one of your nickels. <laughs> and they fixed it because the exact point that Ego says, if you, you know, destroy me now, you'll be just like everybody else. And Peter says, what's so wrong with that? And in one line, suddenly it's like, it doesn't matter that he has special blood. It's, he is part of this group. The other thing is that just because he did have celestial blood doesn't mean that the other guardians holding his hand at that point didn't give him the strength he needed, which strengthens that scene. Yeah. So they have that, to retroactively fixed yeah. the only issue I had with a now perfect film. That exact line that you're talking about and, and the point that it underlines, I think, is part of a, a thematic statement that runs through both Guardians films. And not just in terms of the rejection of like toxic fatherhood or toxic relationships, but toxic individuality, where 
you know, Ronan is the one who has celestial blood and has the magic weapon and is getting the ultimate power. And, and the first one is about how just little broken people manage to stop him just because they join hands. And, you know, there is kind of the, you know, well, he had special blood. That's why he didn't immediately die the same way that the collector's, you know, servant died. But then, you know, it, like I was actually actively worried that the sequel would have something where ego was was less of a threat or was maybe, you know, I, I actively wanted ego to not be a great thing that gave Peter Quill some kind of super magic special destiny blood chosen one BS. And and the fact that the, the second film deliberately has him reject the magic blood destiny chosen one BS and say, no, no, I deliberately do not want that. Like that made me inordinately happy because it's, it, it like, like you said, it does kind of like fix that little eh from the first movie, but it also makes both of these films deliberately about, no, you're not special because of who your dad was, or, or you're not special because of who birthed you. You're special because of yourself and what you've learned from the people that you raised you and who you have found to be your family and because and also, of your actions. And also the element of, um, uh, like you say, it being such a, a classic, oh dear God, here we go again with superhero stories. He's special. He stands out from the crowd because he doesn't want to be like everybody else and now he's found out he isn't. Ultimately, Peter, even it's in the It's the opposite process, of King Arthur, by the way. Yeah, he's <laughs> sword back in the stone. Um, the... Um, uh, th what he finds out in the process of exploring this whole you are special theme is that he is one of hundreds, possibly thousands of children yeah. that uh, the ego has already <clears throat> burned through. Yeah. It's, yeah. it's not you are unique in the universe. It's I've already used up everyone else. You're what's left. Yeah. <sighs> And and the other lesson, I think, that's kind of the, the other side of the coin of the whole abusive relationship discussion is kind of embracing the relationships that are a positive force in your life and, and also acknowledging that a positive relationship doesn't mean that that person has to be perfect. Like, mm -hmm. Yondu is a flawed, flawed, flawed person, yes. but he is he is a positive force because ultimately – he does care about Peter. Like, he cares about his well-being. There's a, there's a scene at the end of uh, Guardians of the Galaxy 1 where uh, Peter tricks Yondu and puts a little troll inside the orb instead of the stone. And Yondu smiles because he's like, yeah, that's, yeah, that's really cool, that's Peter. That's my boy. The kid knows. Boy. I taught him everything he knows. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and that, that's that troll, by the way, was uh, on his funeral pyre. Yeah. yeah, and that's such a positive message to say. Look, a, a, a positive person is not necessarily a perfect person. Like if they if they make you want to be a better person, if they make you um, feel loved, that's kind of as good as it gets, and and that's all anyone could hope for. And yeah, like Yondu's just a dude, but that's good. Um. I feel like Yondu's story in this is one is like one of my favorites in like the whole of the MCU. Like I I like like learning about his old art because if you think about it, at first he thought, oh, I'm just helping to get these children from their home planets to meet their father. 
then he comes to the horrible realization that he's been like aiding this monster and he's given up everything to do this and his one like throughout the whole years like his one redeeming um thing in his eyes is what he's done with peter and even if he had to tell him this massive lie oh i only took you in because um i need someone small to get these jobs done oh i just thought i might eat you but for him to just yeah (laughs) for him to it wasn't funny for me (laughs) for him to perpetuate uh this uh lie of disinterest um to protect peter in some sense it's like it was wonderful to have that very end moment to, for it to all come together and say he may have been your father but i was your daddy yeah that bit that bit was rough for me like that mm. that moment is where where the theater started getting dusty for me and then the and, and then there were there was a funeral and then the fireworks happened. And then like, I was just sitting there with tears streaming down my face for just, just like the last 10 minutes of the movie. I mean, I I, I do have, I do have a gripe actually. And and it's not what you think it's going to be, but my gripe with both guardians movies is it's a little bit creepy that James Gunn keeps like following me around and putting details (laughs) about my life in his movies. Like, it's just, it's a little bit odd, because, mm. like, I saw the first one three months after we lost Mab's mom, and we had no idea that the Meredith stuff was coming. So we were like, oh. what is going on? And and then with this one, it was like, yay, I've been a dad for a whole month. Oh, crap. This entire movie is about giving all of yourself to be a good dad. Oh, jeez. You thought that that commotion by your trash cans was a trash panda. It turned out it was James Gunn taking notes. It It really was. He's ridiculous. Knock it off. Yeah, quit it, James. You better not put anything like Brendan's life in Guardians 3. Um, Or mine. In fact, back off mine, too. There you go. Actually, another interesting uh, trivia from uh, that scene is um, when when, uh, Peter's crying. um, What's his name? I've forgotten the actor's name. Michael Uh, Rooker? No, uh, Peter. Chris Uh, Pratt. Oh, Chris Pratt. Yes, Chris Pratt. Um, Yeah. Like he, that was not fate because recently Chris Pratt had ri- lost his father, and that whole scene like hit him so hard that he was literally like very little that was acting. And I mean, you know, I think about that. Him and Yondu um, are like in a harness, like in a green screen, like quite a surreal um, situation, and they're actually sort of worried it would take a while to get that emotion through, but the fact that it hit him so hard that it just came through completely general, genuine. Supposedly, like, back when they were first talking about Chris Pratt reading the script for the movie, when before they'd even started filming, apparently he'd wept just reading it. So, um, yeah, I, I kind of... It, it must have been very raw for him. Yeah. The emotional impact of this one over the first one is what um, makes it... Um, puts it at the very top of my list it's the reason that the emotional impact of Civil War puts it above Winter Soldier which is again incredibly tight just superb movie making but just that that wham from not just one or two characters as in Winter Soldier and uh, Original Guardians but all the characters go through so much it feels 
Um, ironically, it feels smaller scale, despite the fact that they destroy a planet, um, but at the same time more more epic in in terms of the journeys they go on. You know. Back to something fun and, and musical. We begin the film after the uh, uh, flashback to 1980, which basically, by the way, makes Peter Quill the same age as me. So, yay. Um, uh, we also, this is a uh, period piece. This was set in 2014, um, mm. before Age of Ultron. And there's a slight continuity error, which uh, James Gunn has had to subsequently go, uh, well, I, you know, I fluffed on that, but let's say that it happened at another time as well. It's Stan the Man Lee chatting with the Watchers, confirming a long suspicion of uh, a long time suspicion of fans that he was either a Watcher or working for the Watchers. He says, "And then I was a delivery guy, which was in uh, which was in Civil War, which didn't actually happen in the Marvel Universe until after the events of Guardians 2. However, uh, James Gunn said, "Well, maybe he was a delivery guy in another time as well." Uh, to which point I go, go, well, yeah, he delivered Reed Richards' his mail in the first Fantastic Four film. Oh. But originally um, it was going to be a quote about, and then I worked in a strip club, which is a reference <laughs> to... Deadpool. 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 Oh, that's great. Thus showing their hand regarding Avengers Infinity, fingers crossed, that there is a Marvel multiverse out there. Anyway. I just, I, I, I just like the thought of it became such a prevalent, uh, prevalent uh, fan theory that James Gunn just took me in. Yeah, this makes sense. I'm going to stick it's, that in. That's, I love it. That's I, law now. I especially love the fact that they really did do the Watchers. That's that's yeah. totally Iwatu there, just look, looking balefully at Stan the Man. Stanley Watcher Informant. <laughs> yeah. I, I, either like he, uh, I'd like to think that he's just a Watcher who's taken this one particular form. He's um, or just. <laughs> Or, or just as like they're they're the like reporter guy, or just like you know maybe he's just on the payroll, but he but he is actually being sent to all these different times and places. Uh, what I will say though is let's have a little bit of a musical break because I want people to be thinking about because we've just had a lot of heavy heavy stuff. Let's have a little think about Baby Groot as we listen to Mr. Blue Sky. to start a movie yeah <sighs> honestly pure joy on screen it's it's something that i love about james gunn is the fact that um yeah this there's this massive battle going on in the background but mm. now we're going to focus on this because this is more interesting right now 
It's yeah. Yeah, that, that tentacle thing, not all that important. That Mr. Blue Sky would work, say, if the Ravagers attacked them, you know, because there's a, there's a certain level of um, uh, fun to those pirates, to the point where when they were actually flushing people out of the airlock, it just suddenly the film became incredibly dark and sad, and it made Lyra cry. It's, they, they focus on the anguish of, uh, of that poor guy with the scarred cheeks who turns up in all of those films. But... They had to. I realize now that they had to sell you exactly what happens when you're flushed into space because you need to understand what's happening to Yondu at the end, even if you're little. Mm. There's also, I think, the the element of um, uh, you're countering the Guardians and their friendship and how solid they are with each other and, and how they ultimately would lay themselves down for each other mm-hmm. to a group of people who would turn on each other given a moment's notice. Mm-hmm. And I, I think for me the, the poignancy of that whole section is in um, the, the guy who's left and has to, to kind of reconcile what he's Sean seen Gunn. happen to all his friends. Yeah, James yeah. Gunn's brother. Mm. Yeah. Um, the... You actually, uh, um, just to go back to Baby Groot, you came up with a, a really great um, reason why that works so very well. Basically, we saw the first trailer for it with Baby Groot, and he's, you know, he's charging around and he's slamming those guys uh, with his um, little tentacles, um, tendrils. And you hit upon a reason why just having Groot be a baby rather than just growing back to regular old Groot is in a masterstroke, specifically with kids. Why? Do you remember? Was it something to do with them uh, having someone different to connect with? Because it was it's, Rocket in the first in one. In the first one, kids are Rocket. They're this sort of little angry guy who wants to be taken seriously. Uh, and, uh, you know, older kids obviously are more like Peter Quill. Obviously, you can relate to Peter Quill as well, but the, the fact that Rocket is just such, such a wise ass and um, so sarcastic all the time makes him really relatable. And then when he gets upset, it makes us sad for him. But then, basically, he's being taken care of by this father figure of Groot. But then you switch it around, and suddenly he has to take care of um, baby Groot, yeah, which is like... He becomes the big brother. Basically, that's like having a baby brother suddenly. You're an only child, and then suddenly you have to take care of this little kid who's just getting into scrapes all the time. And you're like, you're having to be the bigger kid at this stage, mm. which is what Rocket's coming to terms with. It's masterful, and it's great for the fact that the kids are now three years older. And statistically speaking, the vast, well, not the vast majority, but a lot of them are now likely to have younger siblings. Because yeah, two to three years is a, a, a very common gap between yeah. children. This is, what I, this is why that really lent itself to that parallel I put together with play at the beginning, the mm-hmm. idea of role play like this. All of Guardians of the Galaxy is just a great big D&D game or, or you know, just about a bunch of kids playing dress-up. Um, it, like, it, it feels like kids actually have this level of complex emotion. They just most of the time don't understand it because most adults don't understand it. Mm, yeah, well, it's, it's something that you, you don't get a lot of opportunity to enact emotions of that intensity. But you do get the opportunity to work them through in fiction, in play, in story, in mm. TV, in movies, in music. Um, all of those things, that on, on one level is what art is. It's not just the expression of the emotions that we feel. It's an opportunity to practice them. Mm. And another thing that I think was really valuable about Baby Groot is that it wasn't just in terms of 
you know, having that immediate connection for, for certain members of the audience. They also use Groot's um, kind of de facto role as a toddler to thread some very delicate needles with the Ravager specifically, because, you know, in the first movie, they're kind of heroes, even though they're kind of not. But, you, you know, you are supposed to root for them a little bit. And in the second movie, you kind of have these factions develop where you kind of have to feel sorry for some of them. And then you have to very definitively not feel sorry for any of them because they're going to get the crap killed out of them, just like mm. all of them. And so, you know, they, they use they use Groot is like because they hurt the toddler. That means that these are the bad ravagers. Anything bad that happens to them, that is OK. Does the rest of them feel sorry for. But but these guys, these guys. Yeah. But it, it does enable you to then treat them as um, maybe not quite individuals, but in, in small groups, not because of the faction they're in or the patch that they're wearing or the, the gang that they belong to, but by their behavior. You get to judge them based on what they do, not who they are. Which I think is important for just kind of delineating Stakar and his group of the other Ravagers, kind of getting an idea that, oh, there's other Ravagers, they act different ways. It's just like this whole different, bigger thing than just Yondu is the boss of all the Ravagers everywhere and they're all in this one ship. Yeah. There was a word that uh, originally David Bowie was going to be um, in this movie, in a cameo, and I'm wondering who he would have been. I was thinking possibly a Ravager. I think the ego I, role is I pretty huge was, for Bowie. I think he was going to be, instead of David Hasselhoff, it would have been David Bowie. Ah. That would be my guess. That, or maybe he would have been the Sylvester Stallone character Stakar. Like, I can I was, see him. I was wondering if, it, yeah, he might have been, like, the uh, the space pirate captain, very ostentatious. Mm. Did anyone else think that, like, that Stallone had kept most of the bits of his old Judge Dredd costume? <laughs> <laughs> Finally, <laughs> it's happened. <laughs> just dust off this bad boy. I've waited for this for 25 years. That makes a little Everyone's more... asking for a Dread sequel, huh? <laughs> no, 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 no. That's, um, that that role for Bowie does make a little bit more sense to me because it it seems he seems like the kind of person that Meredith might tie ego up with and and think of him as being like that, um, especially the Starman element, mm. um, but but not necessarily Peter envisioning yeah. him as a as a father. I mean, you think what Bowie was like in the 80s. Mm. Man, Labyrinth era Bowie. Who dang. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I want my dad to be someone who's going to steal me in the night and stick me in an Escher painting. He does other things <laughs> in the 80s. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but that's the most famous thing. He did the hunger. My dad's a vampire. <laughs> oh, because, of course, Meredith would have let Peter watch the hunger. Oh, yeah. <laughs> Anyway, one thing I do want to say about Grit is essentially um, him being this size, you get to a real, it really hammers home his actual personality. Because remember, he he was like doing these sort of things um, before. It's just before he just seemed like a big friendly giant sort of character. But he's actually got quite, quite a infantile mind when you look at it. Yeah, yeah the, the grin when he just kills all those Sakarans, like that very yeah. childish uh? like yeah. him, him walking over and just drinking from a fountain as if it's nothing then blatantly denying it like a child would yeah 
like now he has a body that matches up with his personality and it just sort of brings out sort of those key aspects it also reinforces the idea of um, his selflessness and his compassion because those are also qualities that you might not think but little children have yeah. a lot of the time and it's it, it can be very uh, very intense because they, they see a very pure form of it and sometimes it's only momentary but it can be there he is actually a, he is a different version of the character it's um uh, it's almost like Groot when he was a child like it's, it's worked him he's Benjamin buttoned mm. like uh, um but he doesn't have that uh breadth of, of wisdom that he uh did that that it feels like harm uh, that as as uh, the older Groot is he's actually quite violent and, and pushy and aggressive and swears as well <laughs> so and then obviously when he's a teenager he's oh, I'm Groot like cuz he has tree <laughs> tree hormones what i i think it's depending on how much people expect from him like now like because he's small and mm. not so much help like nobody's expecting much from him so he's just free to do whatever he wants yeah He's adorable. It's, it's uh, that that opening is one of my absolute favourites of all time for for any film. Honestly, it's wonderful. Um, it actually ever so slightly outstrips um, "Come and Get Your Love" from the uh, beginning of the first uh, Guardians. Only slightly though. And very less little thing because I enjoyed the little joke. Um, his thing about hats. Like, yeah. Sometimes, some, you, sometimes you just can't tell someone has a weird head or a hat. Now, so I suppose that's hard for a plant creature. That's really why you don't like hats. <laughs> <laughs> um, I really want to talk about Rocket, but we have to save him for the uh, near the end. I, fuck, like Rocket's like top Marvel character for me. Um, but we'll just talk a little bit about the other antagonists, Aisha and what were they called? The I've seen it the twice sovereign. now. The Sovereign. The Sovereign and uh, the Ravagers as antagonists, sort of sub-antagonists, things that can um, uh, genuinely endanger the Guardians, but you know they're not going to be the ones who get their number. They're, they're not the, um, the big bad. But... Uh, is it wrong that I was totally attracted to Aisha? <laughs> the, the, no. There's something, something very like almost like a, a um, Galadrielly, but younger about her. Like she's she's trying very very hard to be this commanding presence, and this, there, there's occasional times when she lets the real person slip through her frustration over the video game, and um, uh, you know when she gets blasted out of the sky, and when Taserface. Tells her his name. Just tell him it was Taserface. What did him in? And she just cracks up laughing. I just, I kind of want her to be forced to hang out with the Guardians, same as Nebula, for a whole uh, week, and just to, to see her coming out of her shell because she's probably had a really strict, miserable upbringing as well. Well, it's clear she's a bit unhinged by the end of it. <laughs> yeah. It, it was great to uh, great to see um, that not only do we have a great central villain in the form of Ego, that even the kind of lesser villains were fascinating in their own way, and yeah. and fascinating doesn't need it doesn't need to be uh, thematically uh, rich. Sometimes it can just be 
they're really funny and we like mm. seeing them on screen and that's really kind of how masses. i yeah and that and that's kind of how i feel about the sovereign and and uh, taserface that uh, <laughs> as little screen time as they get they make a really good impression they they do have an impact on the enjoyment um of this film in a way that ronan definitely didn't mm. and also Pray silence for taserface <laughs> yeah, sorry, continue. <laughs> and um, yeah, just kind of the the also, I I love the design of the the, the sovereign. Um, we yeah. joked before, like, oh, they're all, they love their gold, don't they? Mm. But the costume design is really fantastic. Like, oh, I, yeah. I I love that like attention to detail on her dress and the different hairstyles she has every time she comes on screen. And just like the co- the concept of the drone ships is such a mm. funny concept, and and the gr- a great use of sound design in in mm. that scene, the really arcade yeah. noises, yeah, it's just that they're really funny, and 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 they uh, they're not on screen for very long compared to you know ego, but yeah, they they make use of them really well. I like how they commit to their thing, like the fact that they brought out like not even a mechanical self-unfurling one but a hand unfurling carpet all the way from wherever their ship was <laughs> to stand in front of Yondu mm. like that's got to be miles and because they're so fixated on this image that they present like they're willing to go that far and I love she's that she's doing these awkward little baby steps along in the slope mm. trying to keep her dignity like, that's I think me- what I found so appealing about her just yeah. trying to keep her dignity whilst being insulted by a rat like you could you could imagine like somebody might have said um, like we'll, we'll send them a bit further ahead and you can follow on so you won't have to wait but no I'm going to be at the head of this procession yeah, constantly projecting that image of control, and like you, know, you could just see under her at the surface, she's just like, ah, oh, just get it moving. Absolutely, I think one of the things that Guardians has always worked well on is contrast as well, yeah. and I think the one of the reasons that Sovereign works so well as um, an antagonist is because you can compare them directly with the Ravagers. Filthy, scruffy, messy, Mm. incredibly immaculately polished, golden, clean. Uh, Scraggy running around the the galaxy, um, probably shagging whoever and left right and center oh absolutely (laughs) no but that's that's kind of my point versus um carefully genetically crafting all of their um offspring and uh, which sounded a bit like a dig at uh the kryptonians but probably actually goes back into marvel lore it it may well it It felt like a real dig at the kryptonians (laughs) kryptonians the sovereign are a legitimate race that are supposedly like genetically perfect as they, as they call the, it. The irony of, um, like, at the end, when they've completely lost and you get the little Adam Warlock flash there, um, the and, and she's just sort of sat there like, oh, we got beaten. Marvel going into space, the, 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 the cosmic stuff they do is more human than even the human stuff they do. Mm-hmm. It's yeah. weird, but like it just feels like the, the way that James Gunn directs it, and like from the looks of it, Thor Ragnarok as well, just the these sort of like because if you get Taika what Taika Watiti that his is a very he human direction. So well, um, he's really a does. master at it. So it's it's almost like their cosmic stuff 
will be 62 times more realistic and relatable than Brian Singer's trying to be real as hell X-Men. Mm. Or know? even even um, The Dark World and yeah. the... the um, that was attempting to be cosmic. Uh, you know, a planet full of people that just kind of gets beaten up yeah. pretty quickly and well, you don't really see any consequences of yes. it. I, I dread to think what Brian Singer is going to do with the Shi'ar Empire in Dark Phoenix. If he like, they, they've been teasing the X Men go to space. Uh, that their version of this is going to be that, like, an exercise in missing the point. Yeah, after after exercise. the Marvel exercise. Oh, an X. Oh, yeah. No, it's going to be extra tough. It's going to be excruciating, maybe. Mm-hmm. You're a dad now. You're gonna make dad jokes like that all the time. <laughs> it's it's an existential responsibility. Um, but the uh, <laughs> after after seeing someone like, well, like James Gunn do what he's done with Guardians, like not only is the bloom very much off the Brian Singer rose, like I, I think Guardians is how you would have to do something like the X Men is like it's the it's the found family and and how are you going to do it better than this? Yeah. Um, you know, Especially with a bunch of teenagers talking in this offhand way. That's going to be, I think, a way that adults will enjoy seeing teenagers. The way that Harry Potter was when it got really, really good. Yeah, or, or, the, or the bits of Buffy where, it, where it's at its best. Of, you know, the, the, the way that's sort of like the high school, but there's weird power stuff, and it's, and it's about yeah. family. But, you know, and, and, and James Gunn is just so good at, at putting his voice in this, like, you know, I, I made a reference to the Sovereign kind of seeming like they came out of Flash Gordon. And, you know, they if you look at them just on their surface, they are the kind of thing that you would see in something like that. But between, like, them messing up the carpet that they're rolling out and having to wait as they fix the jam in the carpet roller, or the, the way they get so into their video games version mm. of combat, like, it is so James Gunn, like his his voice and fingerprints as an auteur, not just like as a, not just as the guy who put his name in the director's box, but like as a filmmaker, it feels so much like his voice is is just the driving mechanism of this film. You know, I, I never want to hear anyone talk about how Marvel just hires people to do a job any freaking more after this, because like this is James Gunn's movie through and through. So Drax and Mantis, I, I I rarely use the word delightful, but I will use it about Dave Batista as long as I possibly can. That man is delightful. Um, his like he kept Drax absolutely consistent the whole way through, and it's also consistent with like Drax loosening up a little bit, trying to have a bit more fun. Like he's now moved on from the um, Kratos that he was originally. Like, this is how Marvel do My Dead Family. They make Drax into someone who you know, thinks about his dead family and is sad, but, um, to, you know, talks about, uh... <laughs> They're like little spots Talks about his life. father's erections and talks about his parents <laughs> copulating. My father would tell Look. me every night of how he and my mother copulated me. <laughs> That's whoa, whoa, whoa. disgusting. It was beautiful. Hey, hey, I love that. And he meant, he meant it when he says that. Story. Yeah. Uh, yes, yes. And the, the fact that he means it when his eyes go all wide, and it was beautiful. Just He really commits to this premise. 
Yeah. It's lovely watching Dave work. And like, he he's a wrestler and he's he's like rock levels of great. Yeah. I think he's la- better. What? Like I think he's better. Honestly, pound for pound of the amount of times I've seen Dave Batista act, yeah. Yeah. The rock doesn't have to try as much anymore. <laughs> <laughs> I think um, for me, what was really impressive, and this is kind of linked to what you were saying, Alex, is just we often in in films we see grief depicted as you know revenge, as uh, rage. To see someone who's had kind of the wounds heal a bit, you know, the scars are still there. They they come up every once in a while, but he's kind of made peace with it. And he's accepting of the new life after the people he loved died. And that scene where Mantis, where that you know they're sitting next to each other near a fountain, and he starts thinking about his family. And he's complete. He's fine. He's complete. He's just reminiscing. And then Mantis touches him, and she bursts into tears. And it's like, well, it. He still feels that way, but he's learned how to make it part of him make it hurt less whereas for mantis it was like she was feeling that feeling for the first time like the family had just died in front of her that's how intense the emotion was for her and that contrast between the the two there uh, their two emotional states is a really powerful moment yeah there's there's two really significant elements to that for me and one is the idea that um that an emotion can be it, it a lot of the time we look at emotions as being oh for this person they feel emotions really really strongly and this person um, they feel it just a little bit and it comes across in a different way and it, it, that kind of underlying this idea that that an emotion is what it is and you might experience it and and project in a different way but it it's still it can be as strong as it is for anybody, but because you felt it maybe more times, you've got more used to it, you know how to process it. Again, it comes back to this idea of, of using art as a way of uh, practicing those emotions so that you, you'll feel more comfortable and more confident dealing with them later in life. Um, and the other thing is the flip side of the whole my dead family thing. Um, I think a lot of the time we kind of expect people to go through there's this this idea that grief has a process and it has these stages and we want people to get through them quickly and you know go go from a to b to c to d and then get to the end and then you can move on like with a roland and emmerich on. movie exactly and and that can you have can you have the worth return to normal by the end please thanks then, no, no lasting side effects exactly yet, like. and and the, the the whole my dead family thing and particularly when it's in context of a revenge story i think is a bit of an extension of that it's the idea that this terrible thing has happened to you but go out and kill enough people and you'll work through it and you'll get to the other <laughs> side and then the you know the, that's a the dreadful curtains, message to send out to you and the sun comes out and it's and it's like it never happened because you've you know drowned the world in the blood of your enemies and and now you can just move on and it's not you if you've lost somebody it doesn't matter what you do you're never going to be not a person who's lost somebody that's going to be with you forever and and not that that means that it has to consume your every waking moment forever by any stretch but the idea that that for um for drax that's something that he can just sit with and be okay with is massive. It it's is like, it, it was no, incredibly God, huge for me. No, no, no. That's that's 
just elaborating. It's like he's found time to... These are the times when I... It may be painful, but these are the times I remember my family in the most vivid way possible. And I just want to stay in that moment for this time being. And the fact that he gets to... The fact that he's sitting on Ego, looking at a beautiful landscape, and those are the times that now remind him of his family. It's like, he's come so far from where we saw him in uh, Guardians 1, where he he got to realise the futility and emptiness of chasing revenge, and he's come so much further to get to where he is now in Guardians 2. I now want to watch Guardians 1 again. Mm. We haven't got time tonight. <laughs> Unless we stop now. Um... <laughs> But uh, Mantis, uh, played by Pom Clementiev uh, from Canada, <sighs> she was one of them. I mean, there's so much in this film that's lovely, and she was one of the loveliest things uh, for, for me. Uh, they, uh, the the childlike way she handled it, but at the same time, she was definitely a, an adult. I think my favorite uh, line, one of my favorite lines from from her, is where. Um, Drax says, you know, what are those uh, antenna for? My hypothesis is that they're to stop you from decapitating yourself on doors. <laughs> and that's why <laughs> if it's anything other than anything. this, then I definitely win. And just the, her response of, these antenna are not about banging my head on doors. And it's like, <laughs> she has something similar to Drax going on in that she has a severe social... Um, deprivation in that she, she has not socialized uh, it, it may not necessarily be something biological for her she could acclimatize herself or it may be something that is actually a, a natural part of her that she will always have difficulty being fully socially calm because of her abilities I, I took it as an element of her having this incredibly sheltered life yeah, and yeah. the fact that the only being she's ever really had a lot of contact with is ego she's ego homeschooled does not, yeah exactly ego <clears throat> does not feel emotion in a normal way she picks up on all these emotions from people but she doesn't know how to process any of them they don't they don't connect with her because she hasn't experienced anything yeah. that gives her a personal frame of reference for the emotions and I I think that again is reflected in the way she she feels the grief from Drax. Mm. She can't contextualize it. She she can get the feeling, um, the same way she can get the feeling of of sexual love and, and sexual, sexual desire love. from from Peter. But she can't put it into context. She can't put it in a personal frame of reference. Because mm. you got to imagine the only person she's had real contact with is Ego, and he doesn't feel real emotions. No. The most he has is ambitions, and that's about it. It's and almost simulated for him. Like he's yeah. like, ah, this is what happiness probably feels like. Mm. And the only th the only reason he seems to keep around is because she's like a portable sleeping pill. That's about mm. it for the times where he can't sleep. A she's flea there. with a purpose, uh, a flea yeah. with uh, that is uh, useful. Because um, she, she literally says, ego took her from her home world and sort of mm. forced forced the evolution sort of the way he wanted for the purpose he needed her mm. which is another example of the kind of abuse I would argue that ego does engages in. feel emotions but he feels as, a, as something to be overcome I think James Gunn might mm. have even like commented on this on the way he wrote the character but mm. like he feels like 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 love is something you've, you've got to like beat it and push it aside as opposed to you know let affection dictate your actions yeah. 
he considers well, himself superior to all other life out there. Absolutely. But again, this is an element of, of uh, narcissism, that, that anything that hampers you getting what you want mm. is an obstacle and is to be overcome. It, it's only to be accepted and, um, and kind of let into your concept of who you are if it is useful to you and gets you what you want. By the way, I've seen a lot of articles recently which say it's all too easy in today's culture to label something as narcissism. I'd like to say, folks, that when we say something is narcissism, we really mean it. So, like, when, when we label it thus, like, uh, don't take our word as gospel, but we do know mostly what we're talking about regarding narcissism. Um, and it's also, as well, it, it, there's a difference between narcissistic behaviour and, like, mental illness narcissism, which... Mm. We're not professionals, not diagnosing anybody with anything. Yeah. The side note, by the way, Taserface. Um, the whole, face. the whole shtick of his character being friggin' ridiculous. Uh, James Gunn, when he had a picture of Taserface and his name and his bio put in front of him, went, "No, he sounds like a complete prat. I'm not putting Taserface in my movie." And eventually, he came around to it of. Maybe we could put Taserface in, as long as he's the laughing stock of the Guardians. Yeah. And, uh, and yeah, that's how they ended up. Because that's a totally real Marvel character. He looks yeah. different, but uh, it's still the same stupid name. Do you shoot tasers out of your face or something? It's <laughs> metaphorical! <laughs> There's also the, 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 the level of characterization for not only is that his name, he gave it to, to himself. himself. <laughs> yeah. I, I, I love when um, creators kind of acknowledge, look, this, no one likes this, no one likes this villain. So yeah. why, why even attempt to take this character seriously? Um, yeah. th this really reminded me of um, uh, anyone who's played the PS2 uh, uh, Spider-Man game, Spider-Man mm -hmm. 2, that came out around the same time as the movie. Now, mm -hmm. it's an okay game. It's not brilliant. But one of the things that was brilliant about it was its treatment of Mysterio. Was where... he voiced by Bruce yeah. Campbell? <laughs> No, 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 he's not. But they, they, they basically depict him as this, I like it like kind of pathetic, insecure guy, who creates all these illusions. Spider-Man proves him wrong. He goes on a little bit of a mini rampage, which Spider-Man kind of easily deals with. And then later on in the game, Spider-Man just finds him in a in a supermarket trying to hold somebody <laughs> up at gunpoint and you're like oh okay this is going to be the final boss fight spider-man punches him once and that's the end <laughs> of the boss fight and all his health bars go down to zero oh, and it nice. was just this moment of genius in a game that's kind of otherwise mediocre and and i love i just love that the, the game creators were just like look who who can take a mysterious seriously he's a silly villain let's do something fun with him and that's exactly what they've done with Taserface as well I'm in the middle of reading Old Man Logan right now I'm at the middle end studying up for doing Logan I'm never going to underestimate Mysterio again although that is a miserable comic book to read by the oh, way yeah. folks uh, I, I don't I don't recommend it for before um, like you don't have to have read, read it to enjoy Logan in fact you'd probably enjoy Logan more if you haven't I mean don't get twisted I do have a respect for a guy who wants to go against Spider-Man with illusions like that's mm. his thing 
one final thing on Mantis is that she is a gentle character who is not kick-ass, and that is rare in action-type scenarios. And she's part of a team of outlaws now and mm. um, is going to have to prove herself uh, able to survive. Ultimately, it, that's her role in the group, is to be able to um, sort of hone in on things about them that they might be hiding, which uh, makes her effectively an antagonist. Um, quick question. Am I a bad person when I left when she got hit by the rock? No. Although it was in the trailer, so you probably would have laughed less in the cinema had you already seen. Because I sort of felt like a bad person because I laughed and nobody else seemed mm. to. The reason that it's funny for me is the she she gets hit by the rock, there's about a second, and then Drax says, Look out, Mantis! <laughs> yeah. Okay, so Gamora and Nebula... This, I mean, their, their uh, relationship in the first one was um, uh, explored lightly and uh, touched upon, and you got a lot of uh, Nebula's rage in that, but it really comes to a head here, and it didn't get to me so much until the second time I saw it. I mean, I, I really, really loved it, but the second time I saw it, when Gamora um, holds her at the end, Nebula's one good arm just goes up a little bit to almost embrace her. And it's just just that little bit of give to uh, Nebula's character. And um, Karen Gillan uh, does a fantastic job of maintaining that level of um, intensity in a very funny film. She's dramatic. She doesn't find any of it remotely funny. And yet she had that great uh, timing with... It's not ripe uh, with the, uh, the route that she's been told over and over again isn't ripe. That was a, a great sort of power of three gag. But, um, yeah, hats off to Karen Gillan uh, for, for that. Just that all, all of her delivery was superb in a comedy movie where she is not able to really be part of the jokes. Also, yeah. having a, a, a female relationship that is not only... Hang on a minute, let me get this right, because I was going to say it's not about competition. It is about competition. Their relationship is based on competitiveness, but it explicitly pulls that to the surface mm. and explores why that doesn't have to be the case anymore. Their relationship exists within the wreckage of competition. Yeah. It, it very much felt like, um, you know how after they fought and Gamora saved her and pulled her out, like mm -hmm. it felt as if... Those moments constantly happened over the years, but whenever they get to the point where they might have reconciled and formed a bond, Thanos would step in and take something away from Nebula, thus mm. feeding that resentment, because that's what he wanted out of them. Yes. So, son of a bitch already, yeah. I hate it. Really it. Is. And, and also, it works as a control mechanism for Gamora as well, because on whatever yeah. level, as a young girl, she sees that happening. She mm. doesn't want it to happen to her. Yeah. And it stops her from thinking of, there's a loser to this. Like, Nebula's not just, like, this isn't just me winning. Like, the fact that Nebula loses, she's losing something. And over the years, like, that's, like, she has so deep-seated issues that she can't let go of going after Thanos. Like, Gamora's been able to find a second wife and move away from that. But she, Nebula, can't let go of that. Like, she he took her brain out of her head and stuck it into a robotic body and then piece by piece took her apart and the fact that like it's clear like she still feels those like it, I, I don't know if I'm just interpreting it but it seems like she's still feeling those phantom pains constantly 
Mm. Absolutely. And that's, there's a symbolic element to that as well, the idea that he, he took her feelings away. Yeah. She can't cry. I watched her very carefully. She looks like she's trying to at the end, but her eyes cannot produce water in that way. Yeah, yeah. And that that is one of the uh, very significant side effects of an abusive upbringing is that your your ability to feel and express emotions in a a, a genuine way is impaired because you you get punished for feeling certain things or expressing certain emotions and and if that happens when you're young enough you learn not to yeah Thanos is a dick <laughs> mm-hmm. amen he may however be a fascinating dick and hopefully we can add him to the uh, top uh, end uh, Marvel antagonists uh, when he finally turns up next year mm. quick so little dick is our little Richard cover band Mm-hmm. Quick little sort of tangenty sort of thing. Like, do you remember when um, uh, Ego touches Peter's, like, where his third eye is, and he can say he can see eternity? Yeah. I'm sort of hoping he's seen, like, you know how Marvel has the physical, like, personification of eternity, like the being? Yeah. I'm hoping oh. that is actually the case, and Thanos is actually obsessed with the physical personification of death. I hope she gets to play into it. I had heard that uh, it was going to be Hela, um, uh, Kate Blanchett's character in uh, Ragnarok. I'm fine with either, frankly. Yeah. Just I, a, I could see the, Hela being a manifestation of that that we can see mm, without our third yeah. eye. Yeah. Yeah. Mm, that makes sense. Also, the fact that that's a, a, I'm assuming, a deliberate mirror of the opening of um, Doctor Strange's third eye yeah. as well. That he gets his mind expanded so that he can see everything, and Peter gets his expanded so that he can see specifically what Ego wants him to see. Mm. And finally, Rocket and Yondu. Now. It feels actually like, uh, in terms of development, Peter goes through a huge, huge thing in this film, but Rocket is the last shot of the movie. Rocket looking at Yondu's funeral and crying. And the last time Rocket cried was when Groot died. Uh, Rocket's crying for himself at this point. Wonder... Yondu really got to him with that, you're me. Like, one of the biggest things I like about Rocket is the fact that when he's so blatantly being an asshole, it just hammers home, like, like you can definitely see, like, the undercurrent of what he's feeling. Like, when he's arguing with She Peter. called me rodent! Mm. Like, you can tell, the reason why he lashes out a lot of times because, like, he's actually been hurt by what Peter said at those points. Mm. And throughout the whole series, like, he's been in so much denial that he's hidden it from himself, and Yondu just uh, breaks him out of that uh, delusion and throws it back in his face. Like, this is, you don't want to end up where I've been. Yeah. Cooper's performance, uh, along with Sean Gunn on uh, like performance being actually there with a stuffed raccoon, the the way Rocket's put across, you know, he's an obnoxious, rude prick, and yet when um, uh, somebody calls him a triangle-faced bear, 
and then he he sort of like growls and then reaches up very gently to hold his nose in shame. The entire audience went, "Oh, this time round." <laughs> While everyone else is still talking, and Rocket's just constantly the, this, like, he's rude to everyone, and so everyone says derogatory things about him because he's little and there's lots of things you could pick on about him. And so he's ruder back in return. And it's just this constant loop that only he can break. It's a very smart way of continuing his arc from the first movie because, it, like in the first film, he does have kind of a complete sort of journey. He's like, at the, if you look at it very superficially, it's at the very beginning, I am a selfish bounty hunter. I am doing this for the money. And at the very end, mm-hmm. well, I guess we're all going to die for nothing. Here we are all standing in a circle, a bunch of jackasses. A bunch of jackasses. But with volume two, it's, well, well, what happens when a character who's had this kind of emotional sort of definition to his life finds a family and doesn't really know how to function in it the the fact that yondu brings up that you lash out at this family because you don't know how you're supposed to function that that you're trying to drive them away because feeling safe is unnatural to you is is not something we see in a lot of certainly not in a lot of superhero movies it's not something we see you know called out just like a lot in general that's a pretty heady concept to to explore in a, in a film of this size. And this movie just manages to nail it. It's just like, oh yeah, by the way, we dunked that as well as all this other stuff. No big deal. Oh, apparently Guardians of the Galaxy Volume 3 has been announced. Oh yeah. And Aisha will be back. Yay! Sweet. I, I know that they announced like two weeks before the movie opened that Gunn did like agree to do a third one. And for, like, forever, people have been asking him, are you going to do Volume 3? Are you going to do Volume 3? And until he had wrapped the movie, he was like, guys, I don't know. I'm kind of making a movie right now. I don't want to commit until I know I have a story to tell. And so that now we know he does have another story to tell, that makes me incredibly happy. That'll be the uh, the only Marvel trilogy so far, which has been helmed by the same guy the whole way through. Yeah. I think Thor, the closest America, we... Iron Man. Yeah. Because, I mean, Captain America was at least written by the same people, but it's got, you know, different directors for two and three. Yeah. Um, and uh, Avengers is uh, two Whedons, and then uh, it'll be two... And two Russo Brothers uh, installments. Um, so, yeah, Rocket and Yondu. There's uh, a, a recurring motif as well. Um, if you look at Sean Gunn's character of Kraglin... He gets upset and starts spouting off. Um, he later says, "I didn't mean to do a mutiny," um, but uh, he, you know, it says, "You know, you you let off Quill all the time." Basically, he's kind of the overlooked middle child son that uh, is becoming increasingly aware that Yondu cl- cares about Peter a lot more than he cares about him or any of the else uh, the other Ravagers. Um, and Rocket has the same reaction when Peter goes off with um, Ego, the planet. He just sort of like he's he's repairing the ship and hiding all of his actual feelings behind a sort of a gruff demeanor. But basically, like they're a family. It's the closest thing Rocket's ever had to a family before, and he likes it. And he's got it, something to lose for the first time. Yeah, and the Peter's going off to do God knows what, and um, he wonders whether Peter will be back, and then whether he, the whole family is now broken off because of this um, tiny one-inch man, or whatever, <laughs> they just uh, flew past. Um, 
So, so yeah, ultimately, um, this is Rocket's movie in that uh, he realizes that the thing he got that last movie, he might lose. And also that even if he gets to keep it, he's being such a prick, he might in fact push everyone away anyway. Kind of like a Malcolm Reynolds in Serenity. Mm. Only he doesn't have this, you know, massive mission to do. Just uh, Rocket is allowing the fact that he's got this anger inside him. You know, relative to, say, Drax, who is dealing with that, Rocket is not dealing with that. And that resentment is eating him up. And his interaction with Yondu in this sets him on the right path. And that tear at the end is, I believe, a glimmer of a realisation of that. Yeah, because he he realised that um, Yondu, even how terrible he seemed to be all the time, he didn't push the, the people who truly mattered to him, he didn't push them away. The fact that they came back for his funeral, like that's what made Rocket cry is the fact that even with all the terrible things you can do, there are still people who will come back for you. Yeah. Mm, yeah. I think there's an element of um, of externalising those feelings as well in, in the difference between how they manage because it, although it seems that Drax deals with a lot of his... Uh, his stuff internally by virtue of the fact that he is communicating on some level with his family mm-hmm. that lets him give those emotions form and give voice to them and Rocket doesn't really get that opportunity he talks to Groot in the first one but Groot doesn't really seem to he doesn't get all the, co- the full concept no, and no. it's it's almost like Groot can feel big emotions. Mm. He can feel the big concepts, but he has difficulty with the nitty gritty. Well, he, ultimately, I love that line for, that I quoted in the uh, first um, film when we uh, I read that essay that Groot that we wish we could see things as simply as Groot. Mm, yeah, but to be able to actually, um, you know, give give words to that the complexity of what he feels, he needs Yondu. He needs to be able to share that with somebody who's felt the same thing. Yeah. Um, and it wouldn't work with Mantis because, as I said before, she wouldn't be able to contextualise it properly. Mm-hmm. Um, it. it doesn't even really I think he's getting somewhere with Peter but it's still not quite the same thing it's because Peter because Peter had a mother and he was loved yeah and, and Peter still feels comfortable sharing his emotions at times mm-hmm. like when yeah. Peter gets drunk he's completely open it seems he's willing mm-hmm. to tell the most embarrassing like things about himself whereas Rocket doesn't have that quite the opposite in fact when rocket gets drunk in the first one he gets super angry and defensive and nearly kills someone there's no point they're where like, he's open they're uh, also like bickering brothers there's very yeah. much there's kind of a ben grim johnny storm thing going on between them mm. like uh, the way that marvel would do it quill to make it through that you'd have to be the greatest pilot in the universe lucky for us i am I... What are you doing? I've been flying this rig since I was 10 years old. Later on tonight, you're going to be laying down. There's going to be something squishy in your pillowcase. And it's going to be because I put a turd in there. You put your turd in my bed. I shave you. Oh, it won't be my turd. It'll be Drax's. <laughs> I have famously huge turds. <laughs> I, I love Drax's laugh. It's, it's literally... It's not the joke that makes you laugh. It's the fact that you laugh so hard that makes me laugh. Yeah, it's so boisterous. 
Oh, uh, on a side note regarding Yondu, um, while I was walking through town again today to walk back from seeing Guardians 2 whilst listening to the soundtrack, um, walking in slow motion whilst listening to uh, Come a Little Bit Closer, it, it does get you some looks, but it's awesome. <laughs> <laughs> Um, how do you know this, Alex? You can hide the fact that you're walking in slow motion. <laughs> you just have to slowly look to the side as you look sort of as you walk past and sort of. See, when I do it, I just put a bit extra swag, swagger in my step. So, um, <laughs> that's why I'm walking a bit slower. <laughs> you want to try walking up that hill in exact pace. The way down we go. Oh yeah, of course, yeah. That is a power walking song, I have to say. Mm. Um, I gotta say, Rooker does have a swagger. Like he's got, yeah, he's got such a well, and and he's just really great in this in general. Um, mm. I I always like seeing him as a character actor because he always seems like he's connecting to the material and finding fun, even that's outside what's written on the page for the character. But in terms of what he has to do with Yondu, with making a character that's really done some bad shit making him still have that like be worthy of the absolution that's given to him at the very end that is impressive especially since for most of the movie he's playing off of the the cgi raccoon and the cgi big group i mean that is Mm. he's got some chops in this movie yeah yeah i love the fact that um it's so unconcerned with the overall plot because they've only got two or three movements to make so that whole sequence where Groot keeps bringing them the wrong thing like it, like in a, in a lesser comedy that's like da 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 and then they, they like they, they make they're running the joke into the ground in uh, a uh, another action movie they're just making a few funny jokes before they finally move on to the action sequence which is what everyone wants to see but in this it's just this kind of Again, it, you're hanging out with these characters, and, and you're just spending time witnessing their frustrations. Well, yeah, parts of that as well is not—it's not just the humor of what's happening. And in most films, that's what it would be. It would be, isn't it hilarious? He keeps coming back with the wrong thing. Mm. But the point of this scene is not that. It's how long will Yondu's patience hold out? It's how patient and calm can Rocket remain trying to explain it to him again? Like, it's I like the characterization for them. I like the fact that the, when he first explains it, you have that brief moment of tension of, oh, how's, how's, uh, how's he going to get through all those people to get what he wants? And no, it mm. turns out he has no problem moving around and bringing giant massive things. It's just the fact that he doesn't understand. Absolutely. That's a my desk. favorite. I was just about to say that. It's my favorite. Just the the. That's a desk. <laughs> no further lines necessary. Mm. And then and, the uh, best punchline to that scene is the fact that there's a dramatic beat with Craglin that caps it off. Yeah. Mm. Mm. Yeah. Absolutely. Because everybody has to deal with him, cope with him, cater for his weaknesses, small stature, his needs, his vulnerability baby Groot especially when he's being childlike makes this even more of a family he cements them as a family but I actually heard the um, the, the resultant then um, musical action sequence with the whistling arrow described as almost heartwarming which it is it's visually amazing but um, retribution you're, yeah, it's retribution, and you're just so pleased that order has been restored at this point. 
It just feels right. And uh, this film is going to stay at the very, very top of my list for a very, very long time. Uh, it, it, it almost edges out Civil War. I think I'd have to probably watch them both in conjunction. And really, I think it just depends on my mood as to which one I'm probably going to That's prefer. That's exactly what I yeah. said when we came out of the cinema. It, it felt wonderful, but I was... I was kind of going, I wonder if that's because I'm just in that frame of mind mm. at this particular point. It They're just, just intense bittersweetness, yeah. yeah. Um, so that's the, the wonderful thing about Marvel, as Marvel's a wonderful thing. It <coughs> gives they have a movie you, for every mood. They have a movie for almost every mood, apart from just blind anger. I did uh, just want to pick up on just a few things that really... Of course, like, yeah. I really yeah. loved um, the fact that... Um, Throughout a whole ego Peter fight is, it's yeah. There's the big thing about trying to take over the world, but mm-hmm. the thing they keep replaying, saying over and over is, "You killed my mom." Like yeah. that's the core. Like the fact that he doesn't have this point where he talks about, he immediately starts shooting him as soon as he finds out that they killed his mom, and like his final line is to him, "You killed my mom and you broke my Walkman." Yeah. Which, yeah. again, was heartbreaking, but uh, yeah. mainly because of what it symbolised, the last vestiges yeah. of, he, of her. You killed my mom, and you took me, took away the last remnant of her from me. Yeah. There was supposedly going to be, like, a big, long speech that he had that James Gunn wrote, and mm. at, uh, either on the day or something, they were like, let's just do these two lines. And, nope, no, that's perfect. Just, just do that instead. Yeah. yeah. It's very succinct. And because to, uh, Peter is as much a, a lover and appreciator of music as, as uh, Meredith was. And, and um, he spread that out to everybody he's met. Like, it's expanded yeah. to yeah. all of his friends, to Yondu, to the, the Ravagers. Ravagers like, yeah. it's become a core. Like, everybody he's touched, he's passed along, like, this love of music. Mm. Gamora is a dancer now. Yeah. <laughs> Just don't tell anyone. Although, actually, there is when, when he gets the Zune, which all the kids are listening to, which I love that line, um, uh, he's, he's told her it has three, like 300 songs on it. And he goes, 300 songs. And um, that should possibly have just been corrected to 300 Earth songs. Because otherwise, that presupposes that either they don't have the technology to put 300 files of about the length of a song onto a memory stick with a headphone jack um, like a iPod shuffle in space with spaceships or and this is even more terrifying Earth is the only place in the galaxy where they've got music which is of course not the case because where the Ravagers are on vacation there's some music there I think it's just that um, Pete because of Peter's like complete ignorance of any other form of getting music everybody mm. else just thinks oh this is just I guess this is just a better way to experience this I guess like Peter mm. really loves his music so maybe the reason he listened to a Walkman is because it really sounds nice not the fact that he's just never thought of buying a different music player yeah and it does make me wonder whether Yondu actually fiddled around with the Zune enough to actually make a playlist it's only on half battery which uh, would suggest uh, Awesome Mix Volume 3. <sighs> and this is... Oh, God, I love this series so and much. The last point... Warm intensity. The last point I want to end on in the thing that everybody loves. Mm-hmm. I'm Mary Poppins, y'all. <laughs> I'm Mary Poppins, y'all! <laughs> <laughs> With such conviction. 
I am holding in my hand the Disney Infinity figure of Yondu, which uh, I uh, it was four forty seven uh, when I got out of the cinema, and uh, the I, I left in the middle of the credits because I knew what was going to happen. And I bolted to Toys R Us to pick this up because it just felt absolutely right that Yondu himself would appreciate being this troll doll sized little widgety figure. Like mm-hmm. I'm a Disney Infinity figure. He would totally have that on his dashboard. Yeah. They make one of these of Mary Poppins? That dude sounds cool. <laughs> yeah, he's cool. Yeah, yeah he's cool. <sighs> so, uh, yeah, anything else on Guardians 2? I think this is going to be a grower. Like, I, we've gone two hours without obnoxiously mentioning The Empire Strikes Back, but a lot of the emotional structure of breaking up the team in... Mm. in to mm. sort of explore their own issues with various combinations of characters and having a you know paternal revelation be a central part of the final act. I, I mean, yeah. I, I think this is going to be. I think people are going to once they look at this as a something more than just it doesn't have the same shiny new smell as the last one, and actually look at them both as stories. I think people will appreciate this one even more in hindsight. Like, I think it's going to grow in estimation in a similar way. So are you saying everyone else is wrong and we're right? Um, I'm saying that in general, but definitely. (laughs) (laughs) I I think he's saying it's just, we're just waiting for everybody else to catch up to being as right as we are. Exactly. (laughs) Well, and audiences are like already making this a bigger hit than the first one. So I don't know if it's like Mm -hmm. a weird critical fan disconnect or I mean, I don't know what it is, but I I do think people are going to look at this and go like, yeah, no, there's a lot here that maybe at first we didn't realize because we were laughing at the funny raccoon. Not that the raccoon isn't really freaking funny. Well, yeah, like I said, the the thing that struck me was just when I settled into the intro sequence. I just really am pleased to be back with these guys, and it felt like um, felt like coming home in the best way possible. So, yeah, folks, that is our, it from us with Marvel. We will be back at some point with Spider-Man: Homecoming and Thor: Ragnarok. And uh, in terms of newer movies that came out recently, we've still got to do Rogue Ones. So, uh, have not done Rogue One yet. No, haven't done that yet. Okay, we'll do that. Uh, well, what should we leave him on? Um, oh, father and son. Father and son. Is that too much of a cheap trick? Uh-huh. <laughs> <laughs> I regret nothing. Um, <laughs> uh, I'll tell you what. We'll leave you with the chain. There it is. Okay. Right. So, uh, thank you guys so 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 much uh, for for coming on. Uh, where can they find you? Yeah, you can find me over at Game Burst. Uh, we're a twice-weekly show. On Sunday, we do a weekly um, new show. And on Thursday, you can find us doing a roundtable, either on a board games or a chosen subject. You can follow me on Twitter at BLC Agnew, where I occasionally link stuff and also post goofy-looking pictures of my new kid. Uh, you can read my occasional contributions to synapse.co. That's C-I-N-A-P-S-E. Co. I just put a piece on there about why the MCU matters in the age of Trump that I'm a little bit proud of. I loved that. I, I, I read through and I was like, hang on a second. 
That says Brendan at the end. I know that he tweeted it, but I, for some reason, went straight past the bit where you said you'd written it. I was like, this guy's really, really good. Who did this? Oh, <laughs> that's why I recognize that heart. Oh, he's not that great. Yeah, he's quite good. So, um, yeah, check that one out, folks. And Joshua, where can folks find you? You can find me at uh, CanaanRince.com, where you will find two podcasts, uh, and Rince, where we... Uh, take a game or a series of games and dissect them and analyze them in detail and you can also find me on sound of play occasionally where we pick a series of tracks from uh, uh, music tracks from games that we love and just kind of talk about the love of game music and, and why we love them so much i have got to listen to some of those that sounds right up my alley it's great running music sound of play is my jam <laughs> so thank you guys so so much you have been it's been awesome having you on and uh, talking about this wonderful film no my pleasure so I've been Alex Shaw I've been Sharon Shaw and School's Out, out.